Coming up on today's show, we get fancy with traffic labels and then gush over some of the new Home Assistant features while we save our data from certain failure. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex, and this is Self-Hosted. I'm so excited. Autumn is here. The fall is here. I'm wearing jeans today for the first time in five months. Yeah, I'm wearing pants too, and I don't typically podcast with pants. I love that that's a thing. I don't typically <laughs> podcast with pants. <laughs> it's too warm. You know, a gentleman wants to be comfortable, so that way his analysis is comfortable. <laughs> you got nothing? I <laughs> hear <laughs> <laughs> just thinking back over all the episodes pantless. Hey, I didn't say I'm not wearing shorts, Alex. You know, I'm not saying. Well, I was thinking that you do what you're thinking with your dick, so you've got to keep that at the correct temperature. And <laughs> Well, let's just say I can't think if it's too warm. <laughs> but then thought that probably wasn't wasn't radio appropriate no of course not no of course not no no of course not you know what we ought to do is uh maybe not talk about our pants and instead talk about you know self-hosting things maybe (laughs) this episode is brought to you by a cloud guru are you looking to get a high-paying career maybe move into the cloud and make some good change well there's no better place to start than getting a certification. ACG has helped more than 2 million people scale up on the cloud. AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud Platform. Head over to cloudguru.com and get started. So let's crack things off with a public service announcement. All right. The Linux server.io team have made some changes to their reverse proxy. So for many, many years, they've released a Let's Encrypt container. Now they've been contacted by Let's Encrypt to enforce their trademark. So they've had to rename it. They've renamed it Swag for Secure Web Application Gateway. Oh, okay. I thought it was going to be security we all get. (laughs) It could be. I mean, it's an acronym. It can be whatever you want, right? I like to think so. It's a drop-in replacement for the existing Let's Encrypt container, and there is a blog post linked in the show notes. So if you're running the old one, it's going to stop being updated in favor of this new one. Just go ahead and update your compose file or whatever you're doing. Well, you know, big congratulations to LinuxServer.io for getting large enough that they showed up on the trademark radar of Let's Encrypt. That's a milestone. <laughs> I think they're at about 12 billion pulls these days, so they're, they're doing pretty well. Woo-wee. I know. I'm one of them. I just pulled down uh, my new images for Plex, SyncThing, and a few other very handy backend services that are Linux server IO Docker images. So I'll have a link to that, like, like Alex said, selfhoster.show slash 28. We'll talk a little bit more about some new Linux server image that's been released this week. But first, I've been experimenting with traffic. Uh, It's spelled T-R-A-E-F-I-K, so traffic is kind of how it's spelled, but I think everybody just says it traffic. Yeah, we've talked about it a little bit before on the show. Now, in the last episode, I mentioned lychee, which, by the way, if you're American, is pronounced lychee, and if you're from the UK, is pronounced lychee. I went on Wikipedia (laughs) and checked. Oh, that's that's not confusing at all. Okay. (laughs) Potato, potato. Anyway. Right. So I started building out some infrastructure using our new sponsor, Linode. I was using Ansible and Terraform to do this. And one of the things that I like to do is use Ginger templating to create my Docker Compose files. This means I can store all of my uh, container variables in Ansible, run it through the Ginger templating engine, and it spits out a Docker Compose file on the other side. Now, when I was using Nginx as my reverse proxy, it meant I had to also have an Ansible role that copied across and installed the relevant Nginx configuration files. And for anybody that's ever worked with those files, they can be a little bit picky and a little bit cryptic. Mm. 
the best thing, the single best thing about traffic is that all of the configuration now for my reverse proxy lives alongside each container as a label. Yeah, talk about this label thing, because I'm not uh, a traffic expert, but that's my essential understanding is that it sort of assigns what you can do based on your label. Correct. I'm still wrapping my head around it, right? And it's something I've been using for about a month now. I had a lot of help with some of the guys on Discord in particular. I know I seem to mention Discord every week, but... Uh, There's a lot going on over there. That's where the fun is. <laughs> <laughs> so I've I've put together a kind of beginner's guide to traffic, but not as a blog post for once. What I've actually done is I've just put a, a compose file in my infrastructure repo. Oh, okay. Up on GitHub. And a link to that, of course, is in the show notes. Um, and in there, what you can hopefully see is just how simple this thing is to configure. So you define a series of routers and services. And as part of those routers and services, you define the host name and the entry point you want to use. So for, for me, I use Cloudflare for my DNS. So traffic will automatically talk to Cloudflare as part of the ACME process to get my TLS certificates from Let's Encrypt. So I tell each container to use that particular certificate resolver, Cloudflare. And then from there, I tell the router which service to use. So for example, for Nginx, if I'm running that as a container behind traffic, would be on port 80 or Plex would be on 32400, for example. And it's just super simple. And where are you defining this? Where does that information get stored? What, what mechanism? That's the best part. So with Nginx, for example, it would be in a Docker volume that I would mount through a bind mount system to my container. And then those reverse proxy configuration files need to persist on my host. Right. With traffic, it's a label that lives in the Docker compose file. So right next to where I'm saying I want to run, you know, Linux server slash Plex, for example, I then have a label section with five lines in it that says traffic enabled true use this host name, so plex.ktz.whatever, use this entry point of WebSecure, so HTTPS, for example, and then use the cert resolver of Cloudflare. This is the fourth line. And then the fifth line is use port 32400. And it's just right there. It's simple. It's easy to read YAML that's just in the Docker Compose file. And I think that's the part that really has to be underscored. And it's so tidy because it's right there with all of the other information about that container. It's easy to read, easy to replicate, and associated and attached with that container. And because it's in that single file, if I commit that single file to Git, I have a history forever until the end of time exactly what my configuration parameters were for that specific container. Whereas if I'm relying on a bunch of different files that are on my file system in different directories and stuff like that, who's to say that my Ansible role doesn't have a bug in it that doesn't overwrite that particular file when I change the name of the container or whatever it is. There's just a whole bunch of edge case scenarios that this solves for me, and I absolutely love it. How are you choosing what gets committed to Git? Are you, is it every config file? Are you hand committing certain config files? What's the system there? Well, I have a blog post about working with Ansible and secrets. The short version of that is I use the Ansible vault functionality to encrypt a couple of files in my repo. All of the secret source lives in that encrypted file. Ansible then 
interpolates through its templating engines those variables into the playbooks when it runs. Ansible looks for a specific variable. If it can't find it in a decrypted file, it will go to the encrypted file and look for it. And so for me, I generally tend to go with the approach that anything that's personally identifiable, like an IP address or a serial number or an API key, obviously is secret, just anything that I would rather somebody else didn't know, I tend to put in the vault file and then use my Ansible roles to decrypt. Now, the downside of that is it means it has to live in plain text on disk somewhere. But the reality of being a sysadmin is that at some point somewhere, something's got to be in clear text. Somebody has to have the ultimate password somewhere, even if it's in your brain. Encryption is is great, but at some some point somewhere, somebody needs the key to that vault. Well, that's pretty cool, Alex. I like that I can just go in here and read this, and that also makes it very easy for me to get started because this, being able to actually see this example here, which we'll have linked in the show notes, really makes it click for me. Like the Because the other thing we haven't even talked about is the user front end, web UI to traffic and all of that stuff, but fully understanding how I label stuff in Docker Compose kind of completes my understanding, and now I really kind of see why people are talking about traffic. It looks really nice. It was a big change in how traffic defined their routers and services and front ends and back ends between v1 and v2 now we're talking about v2 the current release now in v1 times that I, I just wrote them off as cluttering my doc compose file i didn't want that i didn't want that clutter in my in my file but as i've kind of matured my approach to you know configuring all these different systems i now have my personal server at home i have a cloud instance that i configure that runs all my websites you know my blog and stuff like that uh, and some stuff for my family as well i then have the self-hosted infrastructure and a couple of other things that i also look after by the time i'm scaling this to five six seven different sites it's just really nice to have one single source of truth be that compose file yep amen to that that's how i feel too last week we celebrated our birthday and this week it's home assistant's birthday yeah only we get the presents how great is that (laughs) we get all the new stuff this is one of those things like before the show alex and i were like how do we cover this because we could probably i bet you make two episodes out of just the updates in this one release this was a really big one so we thought maybe instead we'd just pull out like two or three of like the heavy hitters and just talk about those and then link you to the resources For those of you that haven't listened to the show for a while, Alex and I, big Home Assistant users. In fact, I use it more than ever these days. I don't know about you. I think you too, Alex, right? Huge. Continue. Huge. I love the Home Assistant. Well, the Home Assistant has the new release. And I think probably the thing you're excited about, the thing I'm looking forward to is NFC tag support. I think that's going to be a big deal. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really, really easy as well. So they've updated the companion apps that run on iOS and Android. So you can actually write the NFC tags directly from the app on your phone. Uh, And then as soon as you scan it, uh, you can assign automations to it. So as part of this release this week, the automation engine has had a complete overhaul. So now the YAML-based automation stuff is a lot better than it used to be. Um, And so one of the things I've decided to do is stick an NFC tag on the outside of my house. So I can tap my phone to the outside of my house and have it open my garage door, for example. Can't tell you the number of times I've been outside my house without my keys thinking, I need to get in. 
but my keys are on the inside and the only door that's open is the back door, but I want to go in the front door right now and <laughs> this should be a solved problem. And I want to be lazy, <laughs> dang it. No, I I completely agree. So the, the mixer I have here, the Behringer X32, has a built-in spot for your cell phone. It's weird. I've never seen a mixer that does this, but it actually has a little spot for you to place your cell phone on the mixer. And that's because it has, I think, a mobile app where you can control some of the mixer settings. You know what I did? Put a little NFC tag right in that spot. So when I set my phone down in its holder on the mixer, it turns on my lights, it changes the colors, it just sort of gets things ready to go. So I don't have to come in here and, you know, I don't even have to speak to the to a, to an echo or anything. It just put it right down there and it communicates with the home assistant we have here at the studio. I love this feature and I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to put a little tag outside. I'd like to find a black colored NFC tag. All the ones I have right now are white stickers. Mm, I found some heavy duty outdoor grade ones. Oh, really? They're about a buck each, so they're quite expensive for NFC tags. It's okay. It's got to survive going down the road and in the rain. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I think I want to do is put something outside and just turn lights on and whatnot. You know, I came up with quite a fun thing to automate in this house. My wife loves classical music and I love sort of rock music, you know, like Tool and Green Day and stuff like that. And so when we're cooking, we both generally want the opposite person's playlist to never be in existence. <laughs> and so I've 3D printed a violin and a guitar and I've put the NFC tags on the back of these 3D printed things. And I just tap the thing that I want and it plays it through Spotify through my uh, Google Home in the kitchen. That is a clever idea. I like the use of the 3D icon really to drive it home. Makes it a physical thing you're touching. Yeah. And then the other thing I've done is when it's bin day, we have a little picture of a, a bin, which I've 3D printed again and put next to the bins in the kitchen. So we tap that and it turns all the lights in the whole house on so we can walk around for 20 minutes, empty all the bins. Uh, but then it also turns on the driveway lights, opens the garage door. Uh, so you don't have to do anything. The house is just ready for you to go out. Because you know what? You, when, when you're emptying the bins, you know what you're going to do. You're going to walk around, empty the bins, then go outside, put it in the big plastic ones outside, put them at the end of your driveway, and then come back in again. Yeah, that's fantastic. I have a series of like outdoor lights and a couple of other things that I need to quickly take down and, and pack up. And what I have to do now is I, I'm outside. I have to bring out my phone and I, I load the Home Assistant UI and then I tap them off before I unplug them all. So that way they're in an off state when I remove them from the network. And I could just put an F NFC tag out there and just totally do it that way. You totally could, yeah. <laughs> the magic part is with this bin automation, I'm very proud of this one, is when it starts, it takes like a snapshot of the current scene of the house. Yeah. So all the lights that are currently on are stored to a temporary state, if you like, a, a temporary scene. 20 minutes later, when the bin automation finishes, that scene gets recalled and the house just returns to how it was before. Oh, so the previous state is restored. That's great. Mm -hmm. That is nice. That's a real, that's, see, now you're getting fancy with the automations, with the 3D printing and the restoring the previous state. Like that's next level stuff there. Guy gets bored, particularly in lockdown. Yeah. And we love ourselves some home assistance. So the other thing that uh, is noteworthy for Mac users and perhaps an indication of the knock-on effects of the upcoming Apple ecosystem with ARM processors in the Macs too, but Home Assistant companion app for the Mac is now a reality. It's early, it's rough, 
But the thing that's neat here, and I'd like to put a call out to the audience to see if we can pull this off for Linux, is one of the many things this companion app can do on the Mac OS is observe the state of the Mac, because the Mac has several conditions in use, idle, screensaver, sleeping, and it could turn those into sensors into Home Assistant, among other things. There's other things that it, it's monitoring as well as sensor inputs to Home Assistant to help automate things around when you're using your computer. I love this idea, and I'd like to apply it to other desktops. It can detect which mic, which webcam is in use. When you're on a particular Zoom call or something, you could have a light outside of your office that turns red that says, I am on the phone, be quiet, stop making noise. <laughs> or, you know, like me, I mean, I'm that guy, but I have like lights and stuff in the background for my Zoom calls. You know, I try to make it look presentable. You could have that stuff turn on when the mic activates. Is there a word for that? I feel like it's going to be added to the dictionary soon. It's like peacocking, but on Zoom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like Zoom fronting. <laughs> backgrounding. <laughs> yeah, that's, that'd be better, Zoom backgrounding. Yeah. <laughs> of course, most people these days just go with the virtual backgrounds. So that's that's neat. It's a it's an official uh, release from the, from the project. But, you know, just as an aside, and maybe ultimately more important for new users, because I played around with this, and it's pretty powerful. There is a new feature that allows you to add Lovelace cards, which is the dashboard UI of Home Assistant, by entity. And what that means is you can select a sensor or a camera feed or power switch, and Home Assistant will suss out what the functionality of that is supposed to be and automatically generate you a dashboard card for it. And so you don't have to appreciate or understand how these are constructed anymore. You just look at your entities, like myself, I've never built dashboard entries for my seismic sensors. I just never got around to it. I knew the data was getting logged. I was happy with that. However, I thought, well, why, why not? I never really quite knew how to do that. So I went in by entity, selected my seismic sensors, and Home Assistant just generated me a brilliant dashboard widget for it, a Lovelace card. And it's great. And you can do the same thing with new integrations just to get an idea of what Home Assistant thinks you might be able to do with them. I did that with the Ring camera, which uh, has limited functionality if you don't pay for the service, but it's still useful integrating into Home Assistant. And I didn't really know what you could do there. So I just added that entity and let it generate one for me. Yeah, I think we should talk more about that Ring stuff in the future. There's a whole world of cloud connected stuff that's actually pretty cool that we don't touch on that often. Yeah, I agree. Some of that cloud stuff is expensive, like the Ring products themselves, not a cheap product long term, but they have a pretty low upfront cost. And initial indications are they integrate pretty well with Home Assistant. If you guys are out there experimenting with that, let us know, because I do feel like it's a blind spot of ours a little bit. Big congratulations to the Home Assistant for their seventh birthday release. Huge, huge amount of work must be going into this project. I'm so glad that it, it exists because it just makes so many things that you would have had to buy proprietary stuff for possible. I'm, I'm so thankful. So thank you, Home Assistant. Now let's talk about scrutiny. This is a project that could help bring visibility to something that I often forget to check in on. You think you're so smart. Oh, yeah. Well, at least my hard drives do. But of course, what does it matter if nobody's ever checking their smart status? <laughs> Correct. Yes. So one of our community members, Analog J has released a new tool called Scrutiny. And this is designed to monitor your hard drive smart metrics. But here's the really cool part. It uses the real world failure rates published by Backblaze to tell you whether that is in line with what other people who have those hard drives are seeing. Yes. And it puts it all together in a very easy to read dashboard with 
a brilliant layout, so it's super easy to consume the information. This is a great idea, Alex. Yeah, it is. And I nearly lost my freaking mind when I first saw this on Reddit. <laughs> Analog J was asking for 25 sponsors before he made this public and open source, and he got there last week. And as soon as he went open source, one of the Linux server devs reached out to me and said, hey, do you think we could release this as a container? So I put the two people together and they put the PB and the J in the sandwich and there's now a Linux server container for scrutiny. Oh, so I could put this easy peasy on the Studio NAS. I need to as well because those drives are getting a few years old. Like they're getting in that zone. So being able to compare that to the mean from Backblaze well, it's either going to make me accelerate my plan to replace them or give me some comfort. I'm not sure. <laughs> now, it's still early days with the project. You know, there's still a few buttons and knobs and widgets that don't work yet. And he's adding to it all the time. But uh, if you find it useful, go open some issues, give him some feedback, come find him in the Discord, tell him what you want to see, because I think something like this is sorely needed for those of us that aren't running Unraid or FreeNAS or something like that. And uh, it just looks like a really great project. The UI is beautiful and the information it provides is really, really useful. So, Yeah, and it's using SmartD on the back end. So it's getting tried and true information from SmartD. All right, time for some feedback, I think. So Alex C writes in, in the One is None episode, when you were converting from EXT4 to ButterFS, Chris, I was wondering why you don't use Mosh or something like Tmux or Screen. The reason I like Mosh is that it covers you if your network connection drops or if you're roaming between Wi-Fi and mobile internet. And and I think Alex maybe might have Mosh and Tmux slightly confused if uh, when you read the full email, but it's a good question because a lot of mistakes were made that night, Alex. A lot of mistakes. So I generally always do use Mosh. I don't think of it typically when I'm on the LAN as the same machine that I'm connecting to, although I really should always just be in practice. But I think my bigger mistake, honestly, was not using Tmux. See, Tmux would keep that session persistent even if I completely disconnected, right? Where Mosh is going to help smooth out disconnects and interruptions and changing of IP addresses. So it would have helped, but Tmux would have been the better solution. But that night... I just wasn't thinking. I, don't even, I, I bet you my laptop wasn't even plugged in. I mean, I was just in a bad state. It was too late. I knew I shouldn't be doing it, like in the back of my mind, but I pushed forward because I had ran out of time and I needed to get this done before we left for a trip, if I recall, and made the mistake of not taking the proper process, not taking the proper steps to make sure an SSH remote connection is absolutely as rock solid as possible when doing a major file system operation. And that's just the fundamental mistake. I know better. I knew better. Thankfully, you know, in the end, I was able to recover everything. I remember, Alex, how that compounded with an issue where my Google Drive uh, payment had expired because my, my credit card got shut down due to fraud at the same time. <laughs> oh, my God, that was a nightmare. It was like the perfect storm of data loss. It was a nightmare. So, like, I have learned from that. I, can't, I constantly check in on that stuff now. <laughs> because I'm paranoid that that's going to get shut down. And freaking fraud happened again. Just uh, about a month ago, my credit card was shut down again. Somewhere on one of my trips, I guess somebody had copied it and then waited 
quite a while in Texas to try to use it, but they did eventually try to use it. So the bank cut that off and I had to go through the process all over again. But this time I made sure that Google Drive was paid for. <laughs> Fool me once, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, Mosh is pretty cool. I've I've used it a few times, mostly when I was uh, a consultant traveling around on the trains and stuff in England a lot. Perfect for that. Relying on, you know, three 3G, 4G connections all the time. Uh, and the reason Mosh feels so nice to use is because all the keystrokes are local and then it sort of sends them quietly in the background so obviously you might if you know you go through a, a, a dead patch you might have to wait for the screen to update on the result of your command but in terms of what you're typing which is kind of the biggest indicator of latency it just feels really responsive and just really nice well it is it's local echo so it's it's locally echoing back to you and then buffering it which is so clever that is really pretty nice since then i am like so good about it. I don't know if it'll last forever, but it sort of renewed my best practices when it comes to this stuff. I was like, oh, you know, that was that that was my moment. That was my lesson. I managed to pull out of it, but I never want that to happen again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the downside of something like Mosh is that you've got to type Mosh instead of SSH. And at this point, SSH is muscle memory for me. Yeah. I guess I could use a bash alias, but it also requires Mosh to be installed on the remote system which isn't always the case. Not too hard to do. You know, it's not a whole bunch of stuff, but it it is, you have to have it on both ends. That is very true. I think Tmux, if you're not familiar with Tmux, it's worth looking into. It's a real neat trick to connect into a server, get a, se- get a session running, get a whole bunch of stuff going, and then you can just disconnect and it keeps running. It's a great way to pair program as well, because if you open two Tmux sessions on two different systems, they will both update in real time with the same thing. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Um, we actually even just use it just recently, Wes and I were messing around with recording audio from the command line, and we just use it for working on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's great. So I I know better. Anyways, <laughs> I, I will I won't it won't happen again. I promise. But if it does, I will admit it to you guys. I will come clean on the show. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> now, in future episodes, we're going to take a look at some container dashboards and maybe a look at Caddy, which is another alternative to traffic as a reverse proxy. But in the meantime, I think it's time we thanked our site reliability engineers, don't you, Chris? Yep. Last episode, we launched the self-hosted site reliability engineers membership, the folks that help keep this show sustainable, reliable, and fully operational. So big thank you to everybody out there. And Alex and I are already cooking up new ideas for future membership content as well. Selfhosted.show slash SRE. Thanks, everybody. It's pretty cool, Alex. You know, it's pretty nice seeing that come in because going independent again, is scary, but also awesome at the same time. And it's it's a great representation of audience support too. But we totally understand not everybody can afford a membership. That's totally cool. Just listening to the show and if maybe a sponsor seems like the right fit or there's somebody you think you could share the show with, we, we really appreciate that support too. Word of mouth is the best marketing there is. It's like the only marketing that works for podcasts. It, it really is. Mm-hmm. Quick follow-up from last episode where, Chris, you talked about having to run home to pull in your awning because it got too windy. We had a few recommendations from the audience. Yeah, a couple of people, and I think you and I thought of this right after we wrapped up, recommended the Shelly. That crossed our mind as well. But Brian Davenport wrote in with a neat idea of essentially a, a little wind speed gauge that would transmit on the 433 megahertz band, and it would send the speed to a decoder device. That decoder device would monitor the speed, and when it reached 
a certain percentage or whatever, a certain speed number, it would then trigger a hall sensor switch and close that, which would then retract it. The other idea that I had was just check the weather in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. I know. No, it's not good enough. Well, and you know what's funny, Alex, is today as we're recording, a construction truck backed up into the pole that has our power transformer and knocked it over. And now we have no power, which is fine because we've got plenty of battery and solar. The thing is, is nobody's home. We may have left the air conditioning set to automatically kick in and that'll drain the batteries pretty quick. And so I I got thinking, it's like, you know what I need is I need the system to know when it's in a limited power state. And I go back to, I know we have a couple of audience members out there who are pulling this state information from their Victron devices and feeding it into Home Assistant. And I remember somebody hooked up a Raspberry Pi to pull in the information and then essentially MQTT it to Home Assistant. But I don't recall the details. But all this started flooding back to me when I think about is there anything I could do to tell the system, hey, now you're in battery mode. Why don't you turn some crap off? <laughs> Seems so obvious. Seems like you need to have your air conditioning on a remote control as a as a, a starting point. Yeah, I do. And it's tricky because I don't think it's like a household air conditioner, right? It's a furnace, a fan, and AC. And I imagine it's all DC wiring. So I'm not. I'm not sure what my options are there either. You know, it's just one of those things I think the step one is take the panel off the wall and see what the wires are. You know, when we launched this show, the world was still normal and I was planning to come out and see you in April and we were going to do a whole bunch of these projects. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just want to come out and do half of this stuff for you. I know. It would be great because we could record it. You know, I could learn a bunch from you. You could see how I do some of my crazy setups and the things I'm trying to solve for. It would be a lot of fun. We could try and not get pulled over in the mountains. (laughs) (laughs) We definitely could do that. That would be a lot of fun. In the meantime, thank you to everyone who sent in some suggestions. If you have Leet Victron knowledge, I would like to pick your brain. So maybe that's my my next ask. Because we just have the best community ever. Uh, Selfhosted.show slash contact. Or if you'd like to jump on the Discord, selfhosted.show slash Discord. Victron always sounds like it should be like a transformer or something. It is pretty cool equipment. And... The neat thing is I kind of made a bet on this and wasn't sure because I'd never used any of their equipment before, but I got to say very, very, very satisfied with the purchase. It, It's an inverter charge controller and converter, and it is so smooth. I, I can switch between multiple different power sources and nothing blips. All of my gear stays on. It's great. It's really clean and smooth. It produces clean power. Just very happy. Well, now that we're at the end of the show, I'll mention my website, chrislast.com, Alex's website, blog.ktz.me. Well, you can find our sponsor on social media, too. A Cloud Guru is at twitter.com, youtube.com, and facebook.com. They're all just slash a Cloud Guru. Couldn't be easier. And the podcast here is also on Twitter, self-hosted show. I'm at Ironic Badger, and that was selfhosted.show slash 28. Welcome to the post show, members. Hello. Hello, members. Site reliability engineer you. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of trying to debate on what we should talk about in the post show. You know, I could go on and on about Home Assistant. (laughs) It was like, I was like, that was one thing I was thinking. Like, there's so much in that Home Assistant release. I know it's crazy, particularly around the automation stuff. I mean, I know I I briefly touched on it in the episode, but man, like, yeah, Node Red is is kind of dead to me now. Yeah, I was wondering if. Yeah, but really, though, 
but really though? Yeah. No, because <laughs> <laughs> no, I've put lots of work into Node Red already, but if I was coming at it from zero today, I don't necessarily think I'd bother now. That's so far held true. I feel like I've gotten close. The one thing you said earlier in the show, when you said how you were restoring the previous state, I was trying to think how you do that. You must be using Node Red for that, right? Not Node Red, no. So it's a bonus link for the bonus listeners. It's actually on the Home Assistant website. Okay. Uh, and effectively, you use the service scene.create and then use the data of the scene ID before that. And that's pretty much how it works. Okay. Okay. I was worried about this upgrade breaking my bedtime and morning scripts because we had a couple of people mention in Discord that their scripts broke. And so I did a full snapshot, not just like a partial, but I was like the full snapshot because I might have to roll this one back. <laughs> Me too. I did the in the in the Home Assistant interface Google Drive snapshot, but I also did a VMware snapshot. Oh yeah. Don't normally bother with that second one. <laughs> Going all in on that one. Um, yeah, I, I think, but I think it all worked. I've, I've ran all, I think I ran all my scripts. I don't think any of them broke. I think they, all my scripts were fine, thankfully, but they did change some stuff in there. So far, so good for me. These home assistant updates though, I, I don't know what the right solution is. They, uh, they obviously have to change stuff because, you know, APIs come and go all the time. Just look at this. If this, then that announcement, for example, mm -hmm. they can't just leave everything as it is. And also, you know, seven-year-old projects that's the kind of growing pain sort of time where the project gets so big you have to start refactoring the names of things because there's just so much stuff in a project at, of that age and it's an industry which is exploding and every vendor is throwing things against the wall right now to see what sticks and they're trying to make it all work together right so it's it's like rapidly evolving in every freaking possible way yeah I can't blame them. I mean, I think we, we covered a few episodes ago where where it felt like they were starting to get a little arrogant, a little big for their boots. But I, I really feel like they listened to that moment and really reacted on it in the most positive way possible as a project. Yeah, I guess reflecting on it a couple of months later does kind of feel that way. You know, you don't know immediately. I, I have no complaints it, over how they handled this massive release, which is for something I rely on as heavily as Home Assistant. That's yeah. got to be a huge praise, right? Have you seen, and it might just be like the algorithms for me, but have you seen more and more people pronouncing that the Raspberry Pi 4 is the perfect home automation platform? I, I've been getting a lot of videos with that. Uh, no, but I could definitely see why people would say that, particularly now that USB support's been enabled. Yes, USB boot. USB boot support, I mean, yeah. Yes, so that was my question to you. That's where I'm going with this is, and maybe we can make this a, a bigger show topic, but now the question I have is, do I go all in with USB boot or do I try to make like a NASPy and network boot them off the NASPy? By a NASPy, what do you mean? Like you have your network file system serving the root FS or? Yes, right, exactly. So they may have like data drives directly attached to them, but they're booting from one centralized Pi that's a file server. And I, I would assume if I were to do something like this, it would need to be more than just serving network netboot images over TFTP. <laughs> it would need to be doing more things to justify the power load. I'm thinking about when I move things anyways for ventilation purposes into a different location, maybe that's the time to kind of rearrange how I do all my booting and have things netboot from one Pi. And why not go all in and do PoE hats for them at the same time? Just because I like my flirt case. 
but you're right. I totally could. I know. I mean, how awesome would that be? I was on a call at work the other day where there was a guy who had on the wall behind him 10 Raspberry Pis and directly underneath it was a switch. And the only cable going into each pie was a network cable. Oh, that's so clean. It was slick. I'll tell you what. And then you get a managed switch where you could turn off the PoE per port and I could remote reboot them and power cycle them. So that's very appealing too. Yeah. I wonder if it provides enough power when they're really working hard, the Pi 4. I wonder if anybody's had any problems with that. How many watts is the Pi 4 rated for? I'm not sure. I I think I'd have to, we could take a look, but I, I think it's maybe slightly more than the previous. 15 watts. That's not too bad. Oh, really? Yeah. It it gets all that it makes all that heat with fifteen watts. <laughs> yeah, five volts at three amps. Yep, fifteen watts. It's a lot of heat for fifteen watts, man. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, gosh, that would be clean. Oh my gosh. Okay. So PoE switch going to the pies. Nothing but Ethernet. Unify make a two hundred dollar eight port hundred and fifty watt PoE switch. Hmm. Hmm. I know you've got some Unify gear in there. Yeah, that could be a pretty clean solution. You know, cable-free or low cables. That's something that drives me crazy. And do you want to know even more cool stuff about this PoE switch from Ubiquiti? It has two 10 gigabit uplink ports. That's more than I would need, but that's great. You don't need 10 gig, but come on, that's cool. <laughs> it is. It is. They're all going to, all this is going to feed back into a central high-performance router. Um, so... Hmm, that's going to be interesting. I hadn't thought of PoE, but I could I could forgo the flirt case if it meant clean wiring. You got to deal with the heat somehow though. You'd have to buy a heat sink or something. Right, right, right. Yep. Yeah, I would definitely have to change that up. But uh, in terms of overall heat production in a small space, getting rid of those power bricks would help reduce the overall heat generated. Well, you, you could probably have the switch because it's just ethernet in a separate place so you're kind of separating the power supply heat from the processor heat quite easily i totally could and just just run the ethernet in huh come on alex get out here let's do this (laughs) we could bang this out in a day that's what she said (laughs) (laughs) so i mentioned in the show as well the uh, i'm going to send them to you on telegram these uh black nfc tags oh yeah i want to get some of those oh they're called on metal nfc tags uh, and they're, you know, just little black plastic discs. They look like polo mints or something like that. Oh, and they're on Amazon. Oh, this is perfect. Yeah, because what I have now is just like little stickers. Mm-hmm. And they have the 3M adhesive on the back, which is great. The 3M adhesive is wicked stuff, man. Yeah, I didn't want to put uh, those little stickers on the outside of my house, you know, where they've got to deal with sunshine and rain and stuff like that. Yeah. Yes, I know they're cheap, but... I'd rather it lasted for more than six months. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I don't, I just thought it doesn't use home assistant, but I'm now I'm wondering if I could on the studio garage door on the, in the inside, you know, you're going out into the garage. Mm-hmm. Somebody, I don't know who nicked a piece of the drywall off. And so it was just like this perfect spot. I put an NFC sticker over it. <laughs> and so when I walk out, it's an iOS shortcut, but I might, maybe there's a way to home assistant automate this. When I walk out, I tap that with my phone it starts a five-minute wait to give me time to get loaded up in the car and whatnot and get going down the road and get off of Wi-Fi. And then it starts up podcasts, and it text messages my wife with my location and approximate drive time to her location. And I don't have to do anything. I just 
tap the NFC sticker. But I bet you o- over time I could figure out a way to do a lot of that with Home Assistant, at least a good portion of it. Change lights at home, husband in route, kick boyfriend out. <laughs> <laughs> Give her a heads up. <laughs> Wait a minute, maybe I should rethink this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got all the cameras anyway, so I don't think she'd get away with much. Take a snapshot and send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> you probably could. You probably could do that. 